Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Glad that you're here. Those of you who are here live with us, those of you joining us online, we always have a good number joining us on Wednesday nights online as well. So we're glad that you're here. And tonight we continue with the follow-up questions to the study of Revelation. For 26 weeks, we went through Revelation uh, verse by verse. And uh, we will... Uh, since then, there are some questions that developed in our study of Revelation, so we're dealing with, the, with those, and we have three questions that we'll be dealing with tonight. Don't forget that we will not be meeting next Wednesday night. It's Thanksgiving week. We usually don't meet on the Wednesday nights of Thanksgiving week. People have gone different, uh, different places. So no meeting next Wednesday night here. Um, and then the following Wednesday night will be the last Wednesday of questions over Revelation. Uh, that'll be November the 30th. And then three weeks from tonight, uh, those of us going to Israel will be on a plane right now to going to Israel. And so I'll be out for two Wednesdays. And our associate pastor, Tim Franks, will be teaching the Wednesday night Bible studies for two weeks then in December. And then after the Christmas season, starting January the 11th on Wednesday nights, we start going through the book of Zechariah, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Zechariah is the Old Testament revelation. So now that we've studied Revelation in the New Testament, we'll go back to Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet. I think that you'll find it to be very interesting. So that'll start on January the 11th, and we hope that you'll join us for that. So tonight, turn with me. 1 Thessalonians 4 is the passage we'll read together. I'll read some other passages for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll look at verses 13 to 18. Three questions we're going to look at tonight that have arisen either from uh, you, from those that have been listening, or me, or just questions that we've come up with. Uh, from our study of Revelation that developed. We didn't have time to go through the questions while we're in the midst of Revelation, so we're going to address them now. First question we're going to talk about tonight, why is the rapture not mentioned in Revelation? That's the first one. We'll talk about that. Second question is, what exactly does Revelation 22, 18, and 19 mean where it says not to add to the Word of God, take away from the Word of God? What exactly does that mean and how do groups do that? And we'll talk about that tonight. Third question, does Revelation 20, uh, rather 19.16 refer to Jesus having a tattoo? Seriously, I don't know if you've heard that or not. That's very common. Uh, people say, well, Jesus had a tattoo. It says so in Revelation 19.16. Well, that passage says that uh, it's written on his robe and on his thigh, the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So does that mean Jesus had a tattoo? Well, we'll talk about that. So those are the three questions we'll look at this evening. We're glad that you're here. Let's pray together and we'll get started. God, thank you tonight for your word. Your word is truth. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is, it, it is you speaking to us every time we open it up. And so, Lord, thank you tonight for the opportunity with our church body and those joining us online, for those that... Uh, to, to open up your word, study it together, speak to us. And God, thank you for the weeks that we went through Revelation. And now, the questions that have developed from the book of Revelation, I pray that you would bless our time together this evening. Thank you again for your word, how you've spoken to us, and how you've ultimately revealed Jesus, uh, the Savior of the world, through Scripture to us. We're thankful for that. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, question number one tonight. Why is the rapture not mentioned in Revelation? Why is the rapture not mentioned? Well, if you think about it, it's, it's really kind of odd because, of course, Revelation is a book about 
the, the end times and talks, talks about the end. And you would think the rapture would be mentioned there, but it's not. It's not in there. Now, there's one phrase where the, the angel told John to come up here and I'll show you more. And some people take the, word, the wording where it says, come up, uh, that that was the rapture. Well, no, it's not. That's eisegesis. That's reading into Scripture rather than exegesis, rather than drawing out from Scripture what's already there. So that's, that's not a reference to the rapture when the angel told John, come up here um, and I'll show you more. So, uh, in looking at it, of course, the rapture, in case you don't know, that is, a, that is a private coming of Jesus for believers uh, before the, the, the tribulation and then seven years of tribulation and then a second coming. So, it is a two-staged event. And so, that we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. First of all, let's look at the biblical wording. The biblical wording of the rapture in Scripture. First of all, the word rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. It's not in there. Uh, it comes from a Latin term that was developed, uh, came years later. Um, but so the word rapture is never mentioned in, in Scripture. Now the concept seems to be there. We'll look at those verses tonight. The concept of it does. But the word rapture means a, a snatching. It means to snatch or to grab or to take away. So the word rapture then literally means to take away or a seizing or a grabbing, a snatching out of this world in, into the other. And then the tribulation, of course, takes place. So the concept seems to be there, but it's not in the Old Testament. But it does seem to be there in the New Testament, and we'll look at those those passages. The word that's used for seizing or that's used for rapture is the word harpazo in Greek. It is used 14 times in the Bible. And I've read some things before where people say, well, oh, because the word harpazo is in there, that's the rapture. Well, every time harpazo is used, it's not referring to the rapture. In fact, harpazo just means to grab. Uh, whenever Jesus was being arrested, remember he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and, and the troops come. It says they harpazoed him. They grabbed him and led him away to trial. Well, that wasn't a rapture. It was a grabbing. So, so just because the word harpazo's in there doesn't mean it's always referring to the rapture. So uh, it, it's, it's a concept that you can see is, is kind of nebulous at times and sometimes hard to, hard to grasp because of it. Um, is it a one-stage or a two-stage event? Well, what, what do I mean by that? A one-stage event is that we're living life, history's going on, and all of a sudden Jesus returns, the second coming, that's it. History culminates, it's over. That's what's known as a one-stage event of, of culmination of history. A two-stage event would be where Jesus comes privately for Christians, we're taken away, the rapture happens, and then life continues for seven more years, and then he comes back a second time. So it's two stages, the rapture for believers, and then the Jews that are saved in the, in the seven years, and then a second coming. That's the two-staged event. But there are some who believe in only a one-stage event. Those are called historical premillennialists, and they believe that life is going on, and rather than two different stages, it just culminates in one they believe there are several proof texts they have to support the fact, not a rapture, just a second coming, 
but not a rapture. Then there are others that say, no, two stages, a rapture and a second coming. So where did the concept of the rapture come from? We'll look at some verses starting in 1 Thessalonians 4 in just a moment. Let's talk a little bit more about where the rapture came from. The early church and the early church fathers never mentioned a rapture. Now that's kind of interesting because uh, the second coming is mentioned. But a two-staged event wasn't mentioned by the earliest church, wasn't mentioned in their church confessions, wasn't mentioned in any ancient creeds, wasn't mentioned in any catechisms, wasn't mentioned in any of those things that they had to show their beliefs. Nor was it mentioned in the Middle Ages, in the Reformers, Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, and they never meant, they mentioned Sarah coming, but they never mentioned the rapture and the second coming. So the concept uh, or the wording, it was never among the earliest confessions of faith or any of those belief systems of the early church or the Middle Ages. It wasn't until England in the 1800s, 1800s, think about that, rather late for a doctrine to develop. It was primarily the work of a man by the name of John N. Darby, D-A-R-B-Y-J-N Darby, um, briefly mentioned in, in, a, in a paper before that at Bristol Baptist College in Bristol, England, 1744, by a student by the name of Morgan Edwards, but primarily the work of, of J.N. Darby. Darby was a part of what was known as the Plymouth Brethren in England. He had a horse riding accident in 1827. Horse got spooked, threw him against a post. It injured him, and he took, had to take a whole year to recover. During that year, he studied the Bible carefully, he said, and he realized that the rapture's in there. There's this two-staged event. There's a secret snatching away of believers before the second coming happens. And so this is 1,800 years after the early church, reading through it. And so the course of a year he studied it, he developed what's known as dispensational theology. It became known through all throughout England, very popular throughout England. And uh, then, after John Darby uh, uh, presented this, made its way to the United States. There was a Civil War veteran, a United States attorney, state attorney, and a congregational preacher by the name of Cyrus Schofield. Some of you know where this is going, the Schofield Reference Bible. Cyrus I. Schofield, he was a Civil War vet, he was a congregational preacher, he was a U.S. state attorney, and he started studying John Darby's dispensational theology about the rapture and realized, yes, it does look like that is accurate from Scripture. And so he developed a study Bible based on dispensational theology known as the Schofield Bible. I know some of you probably have the Schofield Bible, but it was the first of its kind. It had annotated Bible with, it was an annotated Bible with study aids. What you have in a study Bible now wasn't available back then, so it was really kind of the very first study Bible. And so it became immensely popular because you have study aids, you have notes in the bottom, you have, you have references to words and things like that. Schofield died in 1921, but his Bible continued to be very popular. So in 1967, they revised it, became known as the New Schofield Reference Bible. That was the very first Bible I owned. 
that's the Bible I preached from for years when I first started preaching. Still have it there in my office, all the notes and the columns and everything. But it's basically purported the dispensational theology that started with, with um, uh, J.N. Darby in England. So then, after the Schofield Bible, so popular in the United States, preachers like Jack Van Impey, uh, Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, Hal Lindsey with the late great planet Earth in the 1970s, the book is immensely popular. Then Tim LaHaye with the Left Behind series. And the concept of the rapture then became ingrained in our theology um, from that primarily. So that's kind of where the word rapture came from and how the concept began to be, to be uh, so popular in our culture. So, if, it's, if it wasn't until the 1800s, until it became a formal doctrine, and it wasn't until the Schofield Bible, until it became ingrained in our theology, why is the rapture not mentioned in Revelation? Well, that's rather odd. It's a book about end times. Um, and most scholars will say the reason is because that most scholars believe in a rapture say because the revelation assumes a pre-tribulation rapture so in other words by the time we get to revelation believers are gone so the rapture happens and there's no need to talk about it because it's already happened and so that's why a lot of bible uh, scholars will say that it's because it's already happened well uh the Bible, that if you remember, exegete, don't eisegete. And we talk many times about the difference. Exegesis is taking what's in there, drawing out what's in there. Eisegesis is taking what you believe and reading it into Scripture, trying to find it in the Bible because you believe it. That's dangerous. So let Scripture exegete out of, draw out of it what you believe. Don't come to it what you already believe and try to read it in there. So, allow scripture to form your theology your belief systems and don't develop your belief systems and then go try and impose your beliefs on the bible itself having said all that let's look at the concepts that are there even though the word's not there rapture let's talk about the concepts the first passage i want us to look at first thessalonians your turn there chapter 4 verses 13 to 18 let's read this in light of thinking about what we know of today as the rapture verse 13 but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So it sounds like those who have fallen asleep are with the Lord, because he says bring them back. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left into the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. What does that sound like? Rapture? Second coming? It could sound like either, couldn't it? Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up 
together, harpazo, seized with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one of these words. 17 sounds like a rapture, doesn't it? It sounds like the dead in Christ are raised and then we will be, meet them in the air with the Lord and to, to, together with him. That kind of sounds like the concept of a rapture. Also sounds a little bit like second coming. Because remember, the second, after the second coming, the bo- that's when we get our glorified bodies. And those who are dead will get the glorified bodies. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. So, concept of rapture seems to be there. But also in the context of second coming. Here's another passage. I'll read it. Uh, Matthew 24. Let me read it. Well, first of all, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. You can turn there if you want, but let me just read it. It's only two verses. Listen to what Paul writes. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. So there are many people that look at that verse and say, see there, there's the rapture. But it says the last trumpet. The last trumpet, according to Revelation, is second coming. So is this the rapture, the second coming? For the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, will all be changed. That sounds like what happens when Jesus comes back the second time. Or it could be a rapture because it's in a moment, the twinkling of an eye. Let's go to Matthew 24. Verses 29 to 31. This is another passage that people who, who, who purport the rapture talk about. Verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon shall not give its light, The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the end of heaven to the other. That sounds more like the second coming because it's after the tribulation of those days, it says. At the last trumpet, it says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens where everybody sees it, not just Christians, because it says every tribe, language, and tongue. Now, some have said, well, every tribe, language, and tongue of believers. It doesn't say believers. So it could be either. Second coming of the rapture. Now let me read another passage. Matthew 24, verses 36 to 42. This is one of the main passages that people really... Okay, that's describing the rapture. Let's look, let's look carefully. Jesus said in, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 36, But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son but the Father only. Now listen to this. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay? It's like Noah. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark 
and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field, one taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the meal, one taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. There you have it, the rapture, right? I've heard my whole life, that's the rapture. Two will be taken, there, one taken, one left. Two there, one taken, one left. But stop for a moment. He said, as in the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, the, there was one, those that were taken, those that were left. The ones that were taken perished. The ones that were left, Noah, his wife, I mean, yeah, and, and sons and their wives, eight of them, they're the ones that were saved. The rapture is the opposite. The ones that are taken in rapture are the ones that are saved. And the ones that are left are the ones that are lost. But in the days of Noah, it's reversed. So is he talking about the rapture? Maybe. Maybe not. So that's why it gets confusing. The rapture, the second coming, it all gets confusing through here. There appears, so again, let me tell you, the, appear, the concept appears to be there. That whenever Jesus comes back, there will be those of us who are saved, that he'll rapture us away and the earth will continue until a second coming. Looks like a two-staged event. But the passages, it's why it gets kind of confusing sometimes because it's really uncertain. Is he talking about the second coming? Is he talking about the rapture? Or could he be talking about both in some of these passages? That's why it gets confusing. But as far as Revelation goes, it's probably because what most scholars agree on, it's not mentioned because the rapture would have taken place before that. So Revelation continues on. So, any questions or comments you may have, you can see me afterwards, email me. Be glad to talk further with you about that. Second question. What does it mean in the Bible to add to or take away from God's Word? You remember, we studied it, Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says this, quote, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life, in the holy city, which are described in this book. So that's what Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says. Now, does this mean that if somebody accidentally omits a word while reading the Bible... Are you, are you destined for doom? What if you're reading it publicly and you skip a word? Is that what it means? Or what if you add a word that's not in there? I know some people that believe that. Well, you can't, I don't want to read the word out loud because I'm afraid I'll leave out a word or add a word and then I'll be doomed. Is that what it's talking about? Does it mean that it is sinful to translate the Bible in other languages? There are some that believe it is because you're adding to what's there or you're taking away from what's there. Or is it sinful to have all of these different Bible translations? 
the King James and the NIV and the ESV. And is that sinful because you're adding to the word or taking away from it? Is that sinful? So all of these questions come up. Now, most likely whenever, whenever John wrote this, he was referring to the book of Revelation itself. Don't take away from Revelation. Don't add to Revelation because uh, in that day, that was a very possibility. You had those that were persecuting believers. If they were to find it, they could destroy it. They could, someone wanted to alter it because it didn't agree with what they, what they believed. And so you have opponents that wanted to alter it. You have false teachers that wanted to alter it. So altering the revelation of John was a real possibility. And so John gave, God gave a warning through John to everybody, don't add to, don't take away or all the plagues written there are going to be doubled upon you. But there are a couple other places in the Bible that says the same thing. In the law, uh, Moses in Deuteronomy said, don't take away from this book or add to it. So that means the law. And then Proverbs has another similar word. So I don't think it's talking about just Revelation only. I know, I've known some people say, well, you can't take away from Revelation or add to it. Everything, all, all the other books of the Bible are okay. No, it's not what he's talking about. Because any part of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God's Word. And you can't add to it or you can't take away from it. What exactly does that mean? Let me give you a couple of examples. There have, have been some groups... Um, that have tried to take away from God's Word and add to it through the years. Let me mention a couple of them to you. The Mormons, for one. The Mormons, um, they believe that the Bible, if it's interpreted correctly, is accurate, but it's not enough. They believe in addition to the Bible, you also need the Book of Mormon. You've probably seen the commercials. Commercials, you've heard the Testament of Jesus Christ. Now you need to know more. There's more that needs to be revealed, so therefore we have the, the Book of Mormon. Um, so that, that's kind of where the Mormons come from, is that the Bible, if it's interpreted correctly, is good, but it's just not enough, so you need the Book of Mormon as well. Where did the Book of Mormon come from? <clears throat> as you probably know, the man by the name of Joseph Smith um, 1823 claimed God spoke to him. He was 24 years old. He lived in western New York. Claimed that God spoke to him, visited him in a vision, and told him all the churches are corrupt. Every church you know is corrupt. And all the creeds are corrupt. And the Bible is corrupt. And they're an abomination. And you are the one to restore it to make it true and make it right. Make Christianity once again true and the contradictions in the Bible need to be corrected. So the Book of Mormon then is the book that gives you full knowledge, they say, that corrects the errors in the Bible. Joseph Smith died 14 years later, died at the age of 38. He was pretty young, but by the time he died 14 years later, he had tens of thousands of followers who believed them. So, rather than just one authority, we have one authority, the Bible. The Bible is our ultimate final authority. All matters of faith and practice. 
The Mormons have four sources of authority. Number one's the Bible. They say as long as it's corrected interpretly, and, and, and interpreted correctly, then it's then it's okay. I've had Mormons. I, I, in fact, I ask a Mormon if they believed what they believed about the Bible. Well, the Bible's good as long as it's interpreted correctly. Is what they told me. Uh, that's the first source. The second source of authority is the Book of Mormon. Where'd that come from? Well, when God appeared to Joseph Smith, supposedly, Western New York in 1823, he told him to go up on this hill and dig. And he dug and he supposedly uncovered some golden tablets. And the golden tablets that he uncovered is today the, the Book of Mormon. But they also have more authority in their belief system than just the Bible and the Book of Mormon. They have two other documents. One's called the Pearl of Great Price. That is a document of the lost teachings of Jesus and other people. They say that everything Jesus taught's not in the Bible, so you need more. There's been some lost. And the Pearl of Great Price is the one that does that. And then the second document's called Doctrines and Covenants. And that's modern revelations that God has given to Mormon leaders. So, Mormons believe that if you have the Bible, but God speaks to a Mormon leader and tells him suffering different than the Bible, then what he told that leader supersedes the Bible. It's dangerous, isn't it? In fact, one, one historian said God then becomes trapped in the mouths of their leaders because whatever the leader says is supposedly God's new revelation. It's an example of taking the Word of God, <clears throat> adding to it, taking away. Here's a second example, Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnesses have what's called the New World Translation of the Bible. In the late 1940s, the Jehovah Witnesses and the Watchtower Society realized that their beliefs contradicted the Bible. So when your beliefs contradict the Bible, what do you do? You alter your beliefs according to the Bible, right? Wrong. You write a new Bible. That's your beliefs. That's what they did. That's exactly what they did. So rather than conforming their beliefs to the Bible, they came up with their own version of the Bible. Uh, a committee was selected. It was called the New World Translation Committee. By the way, they wouldn't tell anybody who was on there. It's totally anonymous. To this day, we don't know where the committee met. We don't know who they were. And the reason it's anonymous is because they said, we want God alone to get the glory, not man. So the New World Translation was developed from this committee, and it deviates in key places from our Bible because it's key doctrines they believed that they wanted to switch. Let me give you several examples. They don't believe Jesus died on the cross. So every time the word staros in Greek uh, is mentioned, staros means cross, uh, they change it to torture stake. So cross is always torture stake, it's never cross. Anytime, by the way, anytime you talk to witnesses, they insist on reading from their Bible, not from yours. Because it's a New World Translation. Because any passage you go to, it's going to be interpreted differently to what they believe. Second one is, uh, they don't believe in hell. So anytime the word Gehenna or Hades or Sheol or any of the words about hell are mentioned or the underworld mentioned, 
they, they, leave, they translate it in a different way and they'll, they'll leave the word hell out. Any reference to Jesus coming, the word coming is translated presence because they believe Jesus has already come. He came in 1944. You just didn't know it. But the Bible says whenever he comes, we'll know it. But they say, no, no, he came privately, he came secretly. You didn't know it, 1944. So any, any passage that talks about Jesus coming, it'll say Jesus' presence here with us because he already came. A couple other verses that are key they change. One is Colossians 1.16. They believe Jesus is not eternal. They believe he's a created being. So he's not God in the flesh. He's not God eternal. eternal. He, is, he was created by God. He's a created being, they said. So in Colossians 1.16, where it says all things were created by him and for him, they change it to say other things were created by him. The word others not even in the Greek language in that in that text but they add it because they wanted to look like okay Jesus was created and then he created other things after he was created another passage John 1 1 in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was God well they didn't believe Jesus was God so New World Translation says in the beginning was the word and the word was a God but not capital G God did the same thing in John 1 18. So those are some examples of adding to, taking away from the Word of God. Another example, Roman Catholic Church. They believe that there are, uh, there's authority in the Bible, but the church fathers, church tradition, they're just as authoritative as the Bible itself. So that's taking away the authority of the Word and placing it other places as well. The Pope can speak ex cathedra, uh, and it's God's words. And so again, taking what God has said, adding to it, or taking away from it. Now let me mention this because it relates to this as well. What about those people who believe in the King James Version only of the Bible? There are some Christians that are adamant that the Bible should be read in the King James only. If you don't read it from the King James, you are a heretic and you're a false follower of Jesus. They're called KJV onlys. Uh, onlys. Sometimes it's called KJV onlyism. Sometimes it's called the King James Version movement. But it's those people who believe that only the King James is the inspired Word of God, the rest isn't. I preached a revival in East Texas number of years ago I agreed to come sure I'll come found out later it was a King James only church okay that's all I called the pastor and I said uh, just kind of curious what kind of what translation should I be preaching from he said well any translation of the King James is fine with us any translation of the King James okay I guess I'll do the King James then so but why do they believe that well Bible translations into into English are based on early manuscripts from Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, portions of the Bible in Aramaic. And for years, the earliest manuscript that we knew of was called the Textus Receptus. That was a compilation of, of Greek letters in the 1500s. That was the earliest that we knew. Erasmus was the one that compiled those. 
Since then, there have, we've uncovered much earlier manuscripts that have been found that are critical um, you know, in, our, in our interpretation. Alexandrian text, the Nestle text is probably the, the most accurate uh, text, Westcott and Hort, other texts that have been there. But there are some Christians, the KGB uh, only believe that all those other manuscripts are false. And they believe that the Texas Receptus in the 1500s was inspired by God. Erasmus was guided by the Holy Spirit as he compiled those. And he compiled them, they, they say, perfectly like the biblical authors wrote it. But the truth is, they're really loyal to the King James rather than the Textus Receptus. Um, so they believe that the New International Version, the New American Standard, the ESV, even the New King James, they say, is all heretical and all evil. It must be the 1611 version of the King James because that was the one God inspired by Erasmus and the Textus Receptus. Everything else is not inspired of God. Well, the Bible itself never claims any manuscript as being inerrant. But they believe that that one is inerrant. What's the background of the King James? Why that one? Well, King James Stuart uh, VI was the king of England in the 17th century. He was concerned that, that Protestantism was, divided, uh, was dividing his, the, 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 the religious culture of the day. There were three translations of the Bible at that time. Puritans said every version we have is wrong. So King James called a conference of all the Anglicans, that was the official church of England, the Hampton Court Conference, he assembled them all in 1604, and said, I'm sponsoring you and commissioning you to come up with a new translation of the Bible that will be conducted by British Anglicans, and it should conform to the ecclesiology of the Anglican church. It should support the Episcopal structure of the church and ordained clergy. And so they came up with, this conference did, uh, the King James Version uh, seven years later in 1611. And the result was beautiful. I mean, a, a majestic wording of the Textus Receptus. Beautiful. Became the, it's become the, the leading Bible, best-selling Bible of all time. Still is. Beautiful, used of God. But there's nothing in Scripture itself that would point to the King James as the only inspired version of Scripture. Nothing that points to that or would tell us that, that you have to believe that as an order of faith. So that's on the context of adding to, taking away. What is adding to the Word of God? What is taking away from it? And, and what exactly did John mean and all that from that passage? All right, the last one we have just a few minutes left, but it, this one won't take long. Third question does Revelation 19.16 refer to Jesus having a tattoo? Have anybody heard that before? Oh, yeah, several. Okay, several of you. You're, you're with me on this. Okay. Revelation 19.16 says, quote, On his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Was that a tattoo? Well, I would say no for, for one very important reason, and that's Leviticus 19.28 forbade all Jews to, it says, uh, quote, do not cut yourselves for the dead 
or put tattoo marks on yourselves, I am the Lord. So if Jesus had done that, he would have broken Mosaic law. He didn't break Mosaic law, he was perfect, he was sinless. So we know it wasn't a tattoo as we know it, otherwise he would have, would have broken Jewish law. Revelation is a highly symbolic book. In biblical times, kings and nobles would often engrave their robes or weave their robes with their honor or with their title on their garments. So it's very possible, this is a reference that King of Kings, Lord of Lords, is on his robe, which meant authority, but the thigh also in biblical times was a body part that meant power or strength or authority. So it could be mentioning that the name, that name is powerful and it was symbolically could have been on his robe covering his thigh. It doesn't say skin, by the way, here. It doesn't say it was written on his skin. It says on his robe and thigh. Could have been on the robe on the thigh. Could have been a banner. Could have been a sash. We don't know. The thigh being symbolic of strength and power. Uh, most likely, though, not a literal t- tattoo. Most likely the, the, the a symbolic title of honor and power and strength. It was in the context of the Battle of Armageddon, sort of mentioned in Revelation 19, 16. He would come down, he'd defeat all the armies of the world in the Battle of Armageddon, and he would be victorious. So most likely it's a name referring to his victory there in the Battle of Armageddon. It's not a tattoo as we know it uh, on his thigh. All right, that's, those are the three questions. We'll look at more questions two weeks from tonight from Revelation that have come up from this that you've submitted to me. And I wanted to cover some of those as best we could before we move on from the book. Any other questions you have, again, feel free to see me afterwards or send me an email. I'll be glad to to hear from you. Let's pray together. We'll dismiss. God, thank you again tonight for your word. Thank you for what you teach us through it. Thank you, Lord, that your word is inerrant. It's infallible. It's everything that we need. And we know exactly what you speak to us because of the pages of this book. Thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that he is all-powerful, all-victorious the only Savior of the world, and we thank you that redemption is found in no other name but his, and we praise you for that tonight. God, thank you for these people. Continue to guide us on these Wednesdays as we open up your book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through your books. God bless us as we do so in the days to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. See you Sunday.